right, everyone. Welcome to the Industrial Marketer Podcast, the podcast for industrial marketers by industrial marketers in the manufacturing space. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Shinella. And I am MJ Peters. And MJ and I are both feeling uh, very well rested after our collective time off last week. But um, MJ, I know you're getting back in the office. Why don't you tell everyone what you did real quick? Uh, I drove through the four national parks in West Texas and New Mexico. I think the one in West Texas, Big Bend, is like one of the least visited national parks. But fun fact, um, I have actually been to the least visited national monument in the entire national park system. Which what is, is that? Alaska. What is that? It is Aniakchak. And you what? can only get there via float plane. Float plane. Where yeah, is that? I, I used to be a park ranger. Well, I was used to be a, an assistant biologist in a national park in Alaska. So that's when I got to go to Aniakchak. Interesting. I'll have to look that up after we record here. So we're going to fly solo today. We have no guest. Um, we did this before, and it's actually one of my favorite episodes that we did. Where we talked about the evolution of content in, in the industrial sector. So we figured we'd uh, roll with that again. We didn't have a guest queued up. We do have others planned in the future. Um, but we're going to talk today about lessons from website overhauls, um, which is very timely for a couple of reasons. One, uh, MJ, I know you recently fielded a question about this on LinkedIn. And I ironically have just recently prepped a webinar on this with uh, Julian Schaff, my colleague at Gorilla76. So really good timing, I think, for this question. So um, I kind of just want to open the floor. I'll just start by just asking you a little bit because uh, um, a little inside baseball for you guys. I actually used MJ's website as an example in my webinar, uh, which, uh, which came out this past Monday. Uh, so MJ, I wanted to ask you a little bit. You've done three websites in your life. Um, including the one for Firetrace just recently, because I remember you uh, I remember you let me kind of give you some feedback on it when you first came out with it. So um, why don't you give me a little bit of the lessons that you've learned from doing it three times? You also did an e-commerce one, I know, at one point in time. So kind of give me your, your sort of, your whole approach to websites and how that's changed and, and what you prioritize now versus what you maybe prioritize then. Yeah, the e-com one was actually my first one. Um, that was one I did with Chris Walker in 2016 when we were both at SensorX, which is a small manufacturer of water quality sensors. So I actually started working there right after he had launched the official overhaul. And that was a, that was a WordPress site with the e-commerce. And the previous year, uh, the company had a different WordPress site that was like a lot of me, me, me company stuff, a lot of products, a lot of specifications all over the place, and not a lot of necessarily helpful information. And then they sold like a couple of products on there, but not the whole range. And Chris took it in a totally different direction. It was helpful information first, lots of technical content, um, and I think over a hundred different products. So I think probably before we launched the new site, we were selling maybe six products and, and he took it up to a hundred. So nice platform. We, it was a WordPress site and we were using a theme and we were using just tons of plugins. So that's takeaway number one, because all three of the people working on this site, Chris, the developer, whose name is Matthew and myself, none of us were really professionals at this time. We were just kind of figuring it out as we go went along. 
and we were using way too many plugins. And the problem with plugins on a WordPress site is that you have to update them all the time because there's security holes, patches all the time. And sometimes the updates conflict with one another and they break stuff. And so literally weekly, I was having to <laughs> update all these plugins and make sure that they weren't breaking stuff. So takeaway number one, if you're doing a WordPress site, try to do it right because if you do it right, you're gonna probably be working with a developer that knows how to minimize the use of different plugins, but still give you the functionality you need. And that will save you a lot of hassle down the road because managing all those different plugins is a nightmare, especially for someone who's, who doesn't wanna get into the nitty gritty, like a business owner or like a bootstrap marketing department. Either go with an out of the box CMS like Squarespace or HubSpot, or just make sure that you you communicate with your developer that, hey, we can't have this, this plugin nightmare. But that aside, when we launched, we started publishing a lot of new content. So I was the intern basically, and my job was to start the blog. So I like to, did some video courses on, on how to do blogging. And at first I didn't understand SEO at all. So I just wrote random stuff and nobody ever read it. Uh, later on, I figured out SEO, started publishing lots of articles. And then kind of towards the back end of my time there, I pivoted away from just one blog post for one group of keywords and, and pivoted towards a more uh, pillar page strategy. So for those of you who don't know, pillar page strategy is you go after kind of a high volume, hard to rank for keyword, and that's going to be your pillar. You write a nice long chunk of content that explores that topic, the pillar topic from tons of different angles. And then branching off from that pillar, you're going to dive deeper on a lot of related subtopics and link them all back to the pillar page. So if you don't start out with pillar page strategy, it's kind of annoying <laughs> to go back in time and reorganize your content around pillar page strategy. But after we did that, and I would say it, would it took a few months for the results to really kick in, but after we did that, the boost in traffic was enormous to the site. And within probably nine months of doing that, the e-commerce volume followed and our sales were up over 90% within the nine months after pivoting to the pillar page strategy. So that was a second takeaway that the pillar page strategy really does work if you give it the time to show those results. Interesting. How did you organize content on that website? So it was an e-commerce site. I mean, I guess is that it wasn't an e-commerce site first though. So it wasn't like, you know, like Amazon, you go to Amazon and it's e-com first, right? I'm guessing SensorX was a little bit more of a um, content first or solution first website maybe um, with an e-com component. So how did you, how would you, how did you guys approach organizing that website based on the focus and the, and the overarching goal of it? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think this is a place where manufacturers, B2B companies can, can get confused. I certainly got confused when you have an e-commerce site because your first instinct is build this e-commerce site and focus mainly on the e-commerce. But for us and for most B2B manufacturers, your e-commerce is not going to be your main sales channel. It's going to be like 5% of your sales. So you really, you should be building a content centric site you should be building a site that's trying to drive conversions of 
you know, big million dollar accounts who, who will usually contact you on the phone or via a form. They're not going to just spend a million dollars in your e-commerce store. Mm-hmm. And then you should kind of have the e-commerce component as a complement to maybe ca- capture some of those sales of the people looking for onesie twosie purchases that want like fast shipping and just want to get whatever they're trying to get done. So at first we were probably over optimizing for the e-commerce and then later we pivoted back to focusing more on our B2B business through the site. So, I mean, the SEO stuff benefits both e-commerce and just your core B2B business because you're driving traffic. It's relevant traffic if you're picking the right keywords and whether that traffic results in an e-commerce sale or a conversion via a form or the phone, it's all good. However, the big change that we made when we realized that, hey, e-commerce really shouldn't be the focus is that we revamped the messaging on a couple of key pages, including the homepage to really make it OEM centric as opposed to make it messaging that was geared towards driving e-commerce conversions. And that helped us convert more of the right traffic on our site because at the end of the day, we, we should have been prioritizing that core OEM b2b business the whole time right it's always still a complex sale uh when you're at that level i gotta imagine the sensor x products were expensive anyway um and so i don't know if it was configurable or not but i have a figure you would use it and you know more now than you do then but you would use it as sort of to ease reordering stuff or to help just your sales guy even configure that order for them and say here's the part go and order it here um, and then, you know, go from there. But like you said, just pa- someone passively purchasing, um, I would, I, I mean, I, I would guess that wasn't the case, which is why I guess you guys rightly pivoted towards being more content centric. I wanted to, yeah. oh, Let, one more thing on that is just that, that insight about salespeople talking customers through how to configure something using the e-commerce is, is actually a really good takeaway. And, and I would do this again even at a company where e-commerce strategy, putting configurable products on your site using like WooCommerce, which is a plugin for e-commerce for WordPress, makes it very easy for customers to understand what all of their options are. And I can't think of a better way than just using out-of-the-box e-commerce products to do that. So if that's something you're struggling with, you might explore e-commerce even if it's not a big channel strategy for you. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, gosh, I think of what we did at Benzel, the analog manner with which we had like ordering charts and the guys would like walk around with ordering chart PDFs. And I'm like, guys, there's gotta be an easier way to do this than that. And so they got into product configurators at Benzel, but it was clunky. Um, it was basically a plugin and it didn't work very well. It was extremely slow. It would double load. Um, and then they didn't build a lot of functionality into it. So like, People weren't going to fill a configurator out simply to go ask for a quote uh, to, to print out a PDF of their order. And then you're going to rely on them to email their sales guy. Like it doesn't work that way. Like once you configure the product, the next step better be to buy it. <laughs> no one's, no one's going to all that trouble to not buy it. You know, no one knows. I mean, you, you complete a configurator to avoid the sales guy, not, not, not so you can go talk to him later. So, I mean, always think about the end goal of why you'd have one in mind if you're gonna do it for an industrial product. Um, I wanna to move to your Firetrace experience because, so I use MJ's website today for my webinar and probably the thing that impressed me the most about it 
and I still owe her a sneak peek of what I said, is the uh, copy. I was so impressed with the copy. And I use Graham Emmerman's um, website as well, Machine Metrics, because they recently redid theirs. And I think it's, they did a wonderful job. And I would highly recommend checking out machinemetrics.com and what Graham did with the overhaul. It makes a lot of sense. But I want to focus on you with Firetrace. Um, so tell me a little bit. I know we had talked about your site earlier, and you were not a huge fan of it when you were going through this overhaul. So what are the lessons that you had learned from your previous overhauls that you wanted to apply to this one? Um, and then what, are, what were the things that you really, really wanted to focus on and make sure you got right? In, on this, on the several, because you can't do everything. Like you're, you're just, I mean, you're, you're limited by scope. You're limited by budget. You can't do every bell and whistle you want. So you have to prioritize. So what do you decide to prioritize? Yeah. So I'm going to start by talking about the lessons and they don't necessarily speak to what I would totally prioritize, but I think it's just good to cover this stuff off because it's just pain that you don't have to deal with. If you take my advice here. In between the SensorX website and the Firetrace website, I built a website for my parents' coffee roasting business, another e-commerce website. And I did all of the development myself, which was an insane thing to do, but it taught me so much. And one of the big takeaways there was, I mean, I first of all, I didn't know a lot of the stuff that goes on in the back end of a website. I didn't know what an SSL certificate is. That's a security thing. I didn't know about different hosting services. So I just picked one that said it was optimized for WordPress and it ended up being really slow. And so then I had to migrate hosting, which was a pain. And so again, coming back to the CMS, the plugins, the hosting service, the SSL certificate, when I came to Firetrace, I was like, we're just gonna do it on HubSpot. And so our, our, our site is built on HubSpot CMS. And people tried to talk me out of putting it on HubSpot because they basically were arguing that HubSpot's not super flexible. And I would say that it's slightly less flexible than WordPress, but the trade-off of not having to manage any of the technical stuff is worth it. And if you work with a HubSpot developer, which we did, that has experience doing sites in HubSpot and that knows how to work around the HubSpot template structure in such a way that your site is future-proofed, and you as a marketer can create new pages easily using the templates that they've created for the pages that they're gonna deliver to you, then the site will turn out great. And I don't think I really knew that going in. I was just fortunate to pick a developer that, that did that well um, based on the other things that I appreciated from their sales process. So we went with SmartBug for the first overhaul of the site. Um, and they did a really good job setting us up for future success. They also did a great job paying attention to all the nitty gritty SEO stuff. And yes, our SEO declined for probably about four or five months after doing the, uh, the new website, which is typical, I think. But since then it's, it's increased and now it's back far above where it ever was before. So those are a couple of things that I'm glad we got right on the Firetrace site. Moving on to what I would prioritize, I would say I would prioritize one or two content clusters, whether it's SEO or content that you're going to distribute via some other means like paid and email, one or two really high value, either content clusters or pieces of content that are going to bring traffic into your site and to prioritize the homepage because yeah. you need to get people into your site. 
you need to get them interested and then you need to hit them with the right messaging to get them to convert, which I think the homepage is the place that you do that, the place that you tell your story. Awesome. Yeah, I couldn't agree with uh, that stuff more. The homepage, especially to me, is, is so key. It's the first impression people have of you when they see you for the first time. Um, I was thinking about, we did this webinar today, uh, Randall, who's our UX lead, had a great part port, portion on UX where he talked about just designing your website to be mobile first. And even if your, your website is, let's say you're an industrial company, which most of our audience is, and most of your traffic is probably desktop. It's still 75% probably desktop, maybe 60% mo uh, at the least. But if you're still optimizing for mobile first, what you're doing, what it helps you do more than anything is prioritize the important parts of your landing pages, of your website pages that you want to make sure people see first and foremost. And so if you're looking about, if you're thinking about mobile all the time, you're always prioritizing the copy, the CTA, the experience, like the form um, layout, all that stuff gets prioritized number one, because if it looks good on mobile, it's going to look good on um, desktop. And that even includes things like font sizes and font and contrast to the landing page color. I always think that that stuff is, I'm always fascinated by that because there's a lot of psychology that goes into play with that kind of stuff. And you can measure that using, you know, tools like Lucky Orange or Fig Pie um, or Hotjar and, and take a look at heat maps. Um, but I am always fascinated by that. The other thing that I'm always, I was impressed with your guys' website was how easy you make it for people to convert, which I know just sounds so stupid to talk about, but like industrial companies on the whole make converting on their website so much harder than it needs to be. So uh, can you talk about that a little bit and, and kind of your thought process and how you guys, how you came to making your conversion path what it was? Yeah, I, I actually almost said that earlier, but I figured I had already made a couple points. So I'm glad that you brought conversions up. So when we first launched the site, we just had a contact us form, which has quite a few fields because we use a lot of those fields in our CRM, which is a very me centric way of thinking, right? Com company centric, not customer centric. And one of the things that Refine Labs, who is one of our agencies we work with did really early on is they set up a different conversion pathway, which is a request to quote with very few form fields. And they weren't saying we're right, you're wrong. They were just saying, hey, let's test this out and see if conversions are higher. And the conversions ended up being about 10% higher on that form, which is pretty meaningful if you think about the course of like an entire year, right? It's probably, 50 to 100 leads and if you're converting 5% of those leads that's that's five new opportunities and maybe each of them is worth 50k right that's that's 250 grand that you're missing out on just because your form has too many fields and that's a that's a 5 minute fix right so i would say minimize the number of fields and don't be afraid to go for gold you know our our conversion on every on the top of every page is request a quote it's not even contact us. Like if, if you want to request a quote, you are the best customer we could ask for. You are the one that we care about making it easy for. So we'll give that conversion pathway to you. Think about the purpose behind that language. Even like request a quote is so much more like of a sales intent action as opposed to contact us, which is almost at this point passive. It's like, it's a throwaway CTA for a lot of people. Um, including consumers, because they're like, I'm probably one of a thousand people here contacting them for whatever, 
like how is this going to get queued or prioritized as opposed to if you ask to request a quote it's like i'm probably going to talk to a sales guy if i fill this out as opposed to the contact us form where it's like i probably will talk to customer service who will then forward me to sales and it's like do i want to go through that friction to possibly get a price that may possibly fill my solution probably not so i think you know the psychology behind the request a quote um cta button matters and I, I think the i think the impact of it is is real and i think your your conversion lift is evidence of that so i think that's i think that's super interesting um a lot of manufacturers don't even have a form though if, if you click the oh contact, i know i know oh my goodness like, yeah. uh, it's like an info at email which is even worse or it's a phone number and not everybody wants to pick up the phone maybe they don't actually have that much time right at that moment to talk to somebody. They just want to, you know, get, get their contact information out there so that someone can return their question at a later time when they have more, more time to think about it or, or it's more convenient for them to schedule something. Like people like forms. I know not everybody likes forms, but give people the option to fill out a form. Yeah, I mean, I think people at this point prefer forms to, to having a call. I think people still prefer forms to chatbots. I may be in the minority on that, but um, that's that's certainly my experience, and maybe it's an age thing. Um, but yeah, you're right. And the other thing about the contact us form and the request for quote form is like, you know, ask for the minimum amount of information that you need to route that person correctly, because you know you should be using that, especially the request for quote form. Put in all the info you need to ensure they fit your ICP. And then you know, pass them off correctly. Contact us. Maybe you want a little bit more info just because you need to route it correctly. But you shouldn't be asking people to fill out 15 fields to get a drawing or get a quote or ask about part availability. <laughs> you should be making that stuff as friction free as possible. So I'm always uh, I'm always fascinated by companies that you know ask for a lot of information, and it just makes me wonder why. Yeah, interestingly, uh -huh. I personally designed the request for quote form on our site, and I wouldn't need to do that today. But at the time, I was the only person who knew both the back end of the website and enough about the products and product management to minimize the number of fields while still routing requests correctly. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of an interesting thing in an industrial company. Sometimes the person who has the product management knowledge does not overlap with the person who knows how to use the website. And if you can get all that information, that'll help you design a form that is a lot more user friendly and converts at a higher rate. Yep. Little hack for people who use HubSpot, you know, you can get by without having to ask people what state they're in or country they're in by just using the IP lookup tool that HubSpot offers you and just creating a workflow on the back end to fill that out. That just allows you to take two form fields out of it that you don't need because you can workflow that in um, and get it right with probably 90% accuracy. A lot of people are not scrambling their IP address. Um, and it's just, it's just a good way to just remove friction and just, and allow you to get maybe more information that'd be more prevalent to you. Like, you know, how many CNC machines do you have in your shop? Like a real ICP qualifier for you, right? Because uh, that's really the stuff that matters to you a lot more than where they're located. So uh, the only reason you ask for people, for people's location is so you can give them to the right regional sales guy, which, you know, doesn't seem like a great reason. It sounds like something you should probably hire inside sales for, but be that as it may, that's, you know, definitely a little, little hack to look into. Should we talk about copy? Yes, we should talk about copy because... I think copy is, I'm always, it's fascinating to me how 
things come back around in marketing and copy, which is like a 1920s focus. It was all anybody had in the 1920s when they were doing advertising and doing marketing. And now it's come back literally full circle and it's literally the only thing that anyone in the SaaS space talks about right now is how good your copywriting is. And if your copywriting isn't good, no one's gonna read your content. And I couldn't agree more. And I think it's just, it's fascinating to watch that all come full circle. And your um, website, I think does an excellent job with copy. And I, I wish I had the clip of my recording from earlier today, but um, it was definitely one particular page where you like hit right on like problems that people had. Um, oh man, can I, pick, can I pull it up? Oh, I can. Yes, I have it right here. This is awesome. I will, sh uh, I I'm, I'm not going to share the screen yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to read this off real quick for, for MJ. So it's one of your pages and you say, you have a lot of money invested in your machines. Not only that, but in today's competitive environment, uptime is everything. And then I love this last sentence. You say, um, losing even a day of productivity can mean losing a valuable contractor customer. So like, I love how you spoke right immediately to your ICP, which is like budget Betty, um, or even like CEO, Sam, whoever, whichever one, it can be multiple. Um, and then you spoke to a specific problem that you, that they can have, like you invest a lot of money in your machines and you want to make sure, make sure they're up and running. And then you had some stats and context. So like your second paragraph on that copy, you would say, that's why over 15,000 shops decided they can't take any chances. And you talk about how, like when it activates, your machines are safe and you get back up and running in 45 minutes, like ton of like good actionable stats with social proof, like that copy kills, man, it slays. So tell me a little bit about the process of copywriting that you did. How many iterations of this did you go through before you landed on this and you were like, you know what, this is definitely the copy for me because most, mo most nobody's going to get that on a, first, on a first try. Yeah, this is probably iteration four or five, at least, of that copy. And that, I actually wrote that copy again. Um, and it's, it's probably the best copy on the site. I'm glad you found it. Um, the process starts with talking to customers face to face, like a bunch of the stuff that is in that paragraph came directly out of conversations with customers. So the part about losing a valuable contract or customer came from two different conversations. In the first one, the machine shop owner, CEO, Sam, um, I was in his shop and we were in his office and, and he was telling me, Hey, your product saved this company hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like he loved the product and he was going on and on. And what actually surprised me was you think about these machines and they're big, expensive machines. And if they catch on fire, that's bad. And, and that's kind of like the surface level of our value proposition. But by sitting in front of these customers and talking to them in person, you get to the next level of the value proposition. And for him, that was, it's not just about the machine, you could lose a customer. And this, in my research, was immediately followed up with an anecdote, uh, anecdote, not anecdote, anecdote from uh, a sales uh, team member. And he told me he was selling fire suppression systems to this shop that was making the blades that go in blenders, Vitamix blenders. This is like a $600 blender. And they were competing against a lower cost supplier that was overseas. And basically if they had any downtime at all, they were gonna go underwater versus this other supplier. 
And so it was like the easiest sale he ever made, right? Because they're like, if we have a fire, we're going to lose this customer. So it kept coming up. Like, it's not just the machine, it's the customer. You can lose the customer. And I was like, this has to appear in the copy because it's differentiation versus our competitors. Your competitors are not doing that detailed research. So if you can find those insights, the ones that are at that next level underneath the surface level of what your obvious value proposition is, and you can put that prominently into your copy in a way that is easy to understand, it will signal to your customers that you get them. Yeah, I love it because first off, I mean, I have the screen up. Can you see the screen? Yeah. Okay, so I want people who cannot see the screen, I'm gonna describe this to you real quick. This is literally, literally, this copy is two paragraphs, and a total of, I think, seven sentences. So you don't need to write a huge, um, long 3,000 word blog post to convey the true problem that people are, the, the true fears that people think about when it comes to their business and the success of it. The thing that I'm so, that, that gave me so, made me so excited about this page was just how simple it, it communicated the problem and the solution. And it was just, it's just brilliant. So like, I mean, I would just say, think long and hard about your copy. Think about how you can say, communicate the most effective value proposition that you can in the least amount of words possible, and then make it stupid easy for people to convert. Because what does MJ have right after this? RFI on right under that copy. And then if you're ready to just get quoted, it's right there on the top right, there in the navigation. So, and that actually brings up a better, another point I wanted to make. Like, is it okay to have two CTAs on your page? The answer is yes. If one of those CTAs is a constant throughout the website, absolutely it can be. Like if you're gonna put two different CTAs like uh, all the time in different kind of areas, and, and it's something that Graham did really well for machine metrics, like he would have the same CTA reinforced kind of throughout, and then you have little CTAs that go deeper. So I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give some example that MJ is looking at right now, but um, if you have the same CTA in the same place all the time, and then you can mix in other CTAs that are like more, that are more middle funnel and, and, and a little less of that bottom funnel request a quote. So to me, uh, yeah, you can definitely play with that. And, and I think you should, you know, test that and, and try it out. But um, so, so coming back to one of the points you made about multiple CTAs, interestingly, the two most common conversion pathways on our site are homepage this page about machining and then request a quote done and home page this page about machining the second page about machining which is what happens when instead of clicking request a quote you click see more information uh -huh. and then there's after that page they'll request a quote so there are some buyers that just want to skim the information is this relevant to me seven seconds yes it is okay i'm going to request a quote and there's some buyers that want a little bit more information and so we have a conversion pathway for both of those buying types nice yeah i mean i just I, again i think i think it's just really well done it's clean design's good the contrast is the contrast is excellent the color scheme is really good too frankly and i think you know thinking about your colors matter a lot on your website design um red black and white super classic i mean you can really it's really hard to go hard to go wrong there so um, I wanted to just kind of see, I want to wrap this up for, for our listeners here. Give me kind of the top three or four things you think people should prioritize on their website as they're going through a redesign or an overhaul. 
I mean, there's so many other things that you can do it, but I'm talking high level, you're a marketing director, you and you're hiring someone, you are a VP of marketing and you're getting, and you're getting your team ready up to redo this. Like what are the four things that you would tell anyone that you are who's listening? Like make sure that you put these four things above anything else. That's a good question. So I would, my first tip would be when it comes to the homepage, a marketer on your internal team or the owner of the business, if you're a small business, should own kind of the overarching story that is on your homepage. Um, if you outsource the copy and kind of the kind of the overall flow of your homepage completely to an agency, which is something I've done before, you will not be happy with the result. And if you're not a marketer or you don't have one on your team and you still want to get this right, then the best resource I can point you to is five minute marketing makeover.com. And this is Donald Miller from story brands little mini site where he just shows you kind of the formula for a good homepage. And this is something that you can just do a quick bit of research on and it'll help you avoid the common mistakes. Like you don't have to be a professional marketer to do this. You just need to know your business. So I would say get the homepage right and make sure somebody who's really invested in your business uh, owns that piece of it. Secondly, I'd say think about your calls to action, specifically the one that appears on every page. Usually it's in the top right, ours is request a quote. And then usually there's also one at the bottom in the footer. Just make those strong calls to action. Um, third, I would say the difference between original creative, like real photos of your real customers and real videos of your real customers versus stock photos is more significant than I would have imagined before I went into marketing. So it's worth trying to get those assets and asking people if you can take photos. It, it sets you apart. And I think I was talking, I think we were talking to Graham on this podcast and, and we were, we were talking about how Graham and I market to the same types of people and it's machine shops. And a lot of the stock photography of machine shops has people wearing hard hats in machine shops, which doesn't happen. Nobody wears a hard hat in a machine shop, but if that's all you've got to work with, then you're having to use that and your customers kind of instantly know that you don't really understand them. Um, and then the last thing I would say is use wherever possible, use your customer's own words. So the headline homepage says fire protection that won't let you down. And that's because one of our best customers, Julie Lowry in a testimonial video basically just says fire trace is reliable. It has not let me down. And that's just something simple that everyone can understand. And it's something that a customer literally said about us. So other customers like her, she's one of our ideal customers. We're trying to convey that, that we bring that value to the table and what better way to do that than to speak their own language. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I agree with all of that. I would, I have so little to add to that, except I would just say again, mobile, think mobile first with your, with your website. Um, take some time. I mean, even if you're not a designer, take some time, like take a piece of paper with a pen and just frame out kind of how you think your website should look like and be collaborative with your, um, 
be collaborative with your uh, agency or your designer, whoever, whoever's doing it with you on it. Um, definitely think about that for sure. Um, the copy, I mean, I think copy is so huge. We've talked about it. I would, don't be afraid to use words like you and you, I think industrial companies tend to be very technical with their copy, like write like you speak and write like your customers talk and try not to be some, try not to write in this very highbrow, heavy handed kind of manner. I see a lot of industrial companies do that. I don't think it serves them well. Um, I think, I even think of like the industrial brands who do really good on Instagram. And I think the reason why they do so well is because their content is so damn relatable. Like they talk like their customers and their customers identify with that. And hence they have more brand than most of the big companies, most of the, most of the big industrial companies out there because they're just raving fans of them. So think about in your copy, like talk, like write how you talk and use the word you a lot. Think about their customer and, how, and what's in it for them and not what's in it for you, not what you want them to know about you. Talk about what you solve for them and the problems that they, you help them overcome. Make them the hero all the time. And this goes back to story, story branding. And, you know, I think that, it, and that is powerful. Um, the other thing is storytelling. Like weave that in to as much content as you humanly can. Um, we had a question in our webinar recently, like does people, have, do people actually care about storytelling in industrial? And the answer is yes, of course, because if you don't have a way to frame, you know, the, the problem that you solve, it's just some abstract thing no one's ever going to remember. Like people will remember the story. If you can tell a powerful story around the problem that you solve, something that you can point to specifically, that's going to hit somebody and have um, and, and create a memory. And that's ultimately what you want to be more than anything is you want your copy to be memorable. So if it's memorable, then they'll remember you the next time it comes up. So in my opinion, I, yes, absolutely. Storytelling. Good. What were you going to say? I always didn't really understand storytelling. And recently it was explained to me in a way that made it click, which is the story is a format that humans have been using to convey messages for thousands of years. Like your brain just doesn't have to work as hard when things are pre presented in story format. So use story format to make yourself memorable. And by the same token, write like you talk and write like your customers talk because it's just easier to read. Like people have to expend less energy consuming that information from your site if it's, if it's easy to consume and therefore they will be more likely to digest your message and then want to buy from you. Yep. And then the last thing I would say is like, ask your customers to look at your website pages if you have people who are loyal and just have them give you feedback. If they love you, they're gonna tell you exactly what they don't like about it. Um, and that feedback will be gold for you. And you know what, if you can't get your customer to look at your webpage, uh, have someone who doesn't know what you guys do, do it for you. Because all you wanna do is just replicate somebody who you want to convert and a complete stranger who can't tell what you guys do or what to do next is going to clue you in that you have a user experience problem that you have to overcome. I mean, sometimes having so much intimacy with your website is a detriment to you because you're sitting there waiting for people to do the things you want them to do, but you have no idea how a new person is interacting with your website because you can't think that way. So have, have someone, a friend of yours or your mom or, or, or someone maybe who fits the, the demographic of your ICP, if you can't get a customer to do it, to look through your website and ask them to do something and see how hard it is for them to do it. And that should immediately tell you, I should probably make that a lot easier to do. Beautifully said. Thank you. All right, MJ. Um, I think we're going to wrap this one up. So um, thank you guys so much for listening to the industrial marketer podcast. Uh, please subscribe to the industrial marketer podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Google. 
uh, please leave us a five-star review. Please leave us a written review as well. We got one recently that we really appreciated. It was our first non-five-star review. And you know what? I'm down with that because we ended up taking that feedback and we're trying to flip that into this, um, into this podcast. So we appreciate you. Um, please, please feel free to message MJ or myself at any point in time during the day or night uh, with a question. We'd be happy to interact with you, connect with you on LinkedIn. If you have anything you want us to cover in this podcast, we'd be happy to do so. Um, and for that, man, guys, thank you so much for listening. We have over 2,000 listeners since we've been doing this in March. I couldn't have fathomed doing that when we started this little thing. And um, I'm just really thankful for the, the little small community of people that we have who listen to the show and get value out of it. Um, if you weren't getting value out of it, we wouldn't do it. So just thank you guys so much for that. And with that, my name is Matt. And I'm MJ. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day.